0: This sermon was preached by Ed Moore, head pastor of North Shore Baptist Church in Bayside, Queens. Ed is one of the founders of Doctrines of Grace Church Planners. North Shore Baptist Church has planted five churches since 2005. You can find more sermons from this series and many others at www.ns-bc.org. Please feel free to distribute this sermon to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. Well, in the Gospel of John, chapter 6, verse 44, we read these very simple words. Jesus is speaking in the bread of life discourse and he says no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up at the last day our father in heaven we thank you that you've brought us through another decade and now as we embark upon this one we thank you for your mercy and your grace Lord as we look forward to this coming year we ask Lord for your mercy and for your grace Lord and we pray with confidence Lord, because you've always been faithful. We want to thank you, Lord, in advance for all of the troubles and for the trials. Lord, we want to thank you for the pain and for the discouragement that we will feel in our temporal state this coming year. Lord, we thank you for that because in that we know that we must depend upon you. And so we thank you for that means of grace. Lord, we thank you also for the joys, for the delights, realizing that every good and perfect gift comes from above. Lord, we thank you from a temporal perspective that you are going to be so kind to us this coming year. But Lord, above and beyond our life here on this earth, we want to thank you for eternity. We want to thank you for heaven. We want to thank you for the atonement. We want to thank you for that which is of first importance, which is the gospel. And Lord, we want to ask your blessings upon the sermons that will be preached from this pulpit in this coming year. Lord, I want to ask that every word would be ordained by you and that you would be pleased with what is said. Father, I also ask that you would be pleased with how it is received, how it is heard, and how it is obeyed. Father, we need you. We need your spirit to open our eyes so that we can see and understand the truth. Lord, we need your grace so that we might apply these things. And Father, even today, as we embark upon not only a new year, but a new series in your word, I want to ask, Lord, please, that you would enable me to preach with power and with authority, Lord, that I would preach with clarity and with boldness. And Father, I want to ask, Lord, that you would give me grace to present the doctrines of grace in a gracious way. And then, Father, I pray for each person that will be listening and responding and obeying and doing Lord, I pray that this would be a banner year for North Shore Baptist Church in terms of people having ears to hear and eyes to see, Lord, and feet and hands to do the will of God. And so, Lord, make us doers of the word. Lord, may this word today be received, uh, understood. Uh, Lord, may I be uh, clear in what I say Uh, But Lord, more than that, Lord, may I be accurate in what I say, reflecting who you are and what your word says. So Lord, as the word is presented this day, we humbly uh, place the results in your hands, Lord, for this is your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It was the 25th day of July, 1911. A man by the name of Bobby Leach, a daredevil, embarked upon something which most people would consider to be very treacherous, and that is he placed himself in a barrel and went over Niagara Falls. He lived. A few years later, this same man, Bobby Leach, was in New Zealand, and while in New Zealand he was minding his own business taking a walk, he slipped on an orange peel, he was hospitalized, and there he died from gangrene. How do things like that happen? How does a man go over Niagara Falls in a barrel and walk out unscathed and then slip on an orange peel and die? How do things like that happen? How does anything happen? Is there some sort of design to the happenings in this universe or do events just randomly take place? Well, if one reads and believes the Bible, they will simply and quickly come to the indisputable conclusion that everything happens by design. That nothing is random, that nothing is by chance, that there is no such thing as luck and that God is the one who designed and decreed and determined and directed everything that would work out, everything, the big things, even as King Nebuchadnezzar said in Daniel 4 verse 35, all the inhabitants of the earth, that's you and me, are reputed as nothing he, God, does according to his will in the army of heaven, that is the angels, and among the inhabitants of the earth, that's you and me. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? He does what he wants to do in the big things. But he also does what he wants to do in the small things. For example, in Proverbs 16:33, the lot, or the dice, the lot, is cast into the lap. But it's every decision is from the Lord. Then he does what he wants to do in between. um, Isaiah 46, verse 10. God is the one who is declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will do all my good pleasure. God does what he wants to do. Or as the Westminster Confession puts it, he ordains whatsoever comes to pass. Now, there are a lot of names for God's absolute control. Sovereignty providence, predestination to name a few. But it is best summed up in Revelation 19:6 which simply says, "The Lord God omnipotent reigneth." And Bible-believing Christians have very little trouble finding evidence in the scripture and believing that God is absolutely in charge. No one who is a Bible-believing Christian would seriously argue that God was limited in creation. Everyone who is a Bible-believing Christian would agree that his will is absolutely carried out to perfection in the movement of the planets and with his holy angels and in the animal kingdom. Everyone who is a Bible-believing Christian would concur that Bobby Leach was protected by God as he barreled over Niagara Falls and that July 25, 1911 was not his pre-appointed day of death And everyone who is a Bible-believing Christian would concur that it was determined by God before time began that Bobby Leach would exit this world from a New Zealand hospital by means of gangrene and an orange peel. In other words, everything is ordained by God. Even a frivolous Bible student will quickly come to the conclusion that God is in control, that he is in charge, that he is sovereign. Yet for some reason, the same people who believe and espouse and defend the fact that God is sovereign in all things, they will add the word accept. He is sovereign in all things except the salvation of lost individuals. This I don't understand. Sovereignty is sovereignty. And it's either absolute or it's not at all. God, in their view, is Free to rule the planets. He is sovereign over the whales and the kings and the queens and the presidents. He is sovereign over the weather and the wars and the devil. But in their opinion, he is neither interested nor capable of determining the eternal destinies of individuals, or for some reason, he chooses not to be involved in that, and he is not sovereign in that. This makes no sense whatsoever. If he's not sovereign in salvation, then by definition, he is not sovereign. And, most importantly, this cannot be substantiated by Scripture. What I would like to do over the next five weeks is to do the best that I possibly can to demonstrate from Scripture that God is indeed sovereign in salvation, or as Jonah put it, salvation is of the Lord. Now, in part, I'm going to be giving and historical argument. I'm going to be talking a little bit about history in the weeks to come. But that should not convince you one way or another. Because truth is not determined by history or by majority rule. It is not determined by who believed this previously or who didn't believe this previously. Also, what I'm going to try to do as I present these points is I'm going to try to present why I believe my position is logical and why it makes sense. But once again, let me say this. As helpful as that may be, we are not ultimately ruled by logic. On the other hand, let's say I do a very poor job of presenting these doctrines logically. Let's say that at the end of the day, after listening to all five sermons, you say, this does not make sense to me. Once again, we do not determine truth... By what seems right to us. In fact, we don't determine truth at all. Uh, We believe that there is a God and that this God has chosen to communicate with us. And we believe that the means by which He has chosen to communicate with us is through His written word, the Bible. And therefore, we, with Christ, conclude, Thy word is truth. Whether it makes sense to us or not, whether we like it initially or not, that's not the issue. Now, obviously... I think what I'm about to present to you is logical. But what I think is not the determining factor. God's Word and God's Word alone is the final verdict. Ultimately, in all things, we must be asking the question, what does the Bible say? Not, well, it seems to me. I'm also going to present, as I present these doctrines, what I believe to be some practical applications, the practical value of believing that God is in control of our salvation. But again, please do not disbelieve or believe based upon pragmatism or perceived practical value. Christians do not believe or disbelieve based upon how they feel. Christians should not believe or disbelieve based upon what makes sense to them. Christians should not believe or disbelieve based upon history. Christians, by definition, believe the Bible and Christians should formulate what they believe based entirely upon the Bible. All that to say, if I cannot demonstrate my points from Scripture, regardless of how solid my arguments are historically or practically or logically, please don't listen to me. It has to be from the Scripture. And in my opinion, I believe that the Bible clearly... overwhelmingly demonstrates that God is absolutely sovereign in salvation. I believe that the scriptures teach, and this is what I'm going to focus on today, is that man is totally depraved, unwilling, and unable to come to Christ left to himself. I believe that the scriptures unequivocally teach that God, before time, chose certain individuals to be saved based solely upon the good pleasure of his will. I believe that Jesus died in place of these individuals. I believe that the Holy Spirit draws these individuals to himself and regenerates them. And I believe that all of them will be kept unto the end, preserved by the power of God, and that they will persevere to the end. And so the question is not, do you like these doctrines? The question is, can they be demonstrated from Scripture? And again, if I can't, then please don't believe them. The totality of my argument stands or falls on whether or not this is what the Scripture teaches. Now, these five messages on these five points covering those five topics which I just spoke of a few moments ago go by a variety of different names. Some people refer to this as the Reformed Faith. Some people call it Sovereign Grace. Some people refer to it as the Doctrines of Grace. Others refer to it as the Five Points of Calvinism. The reason it is referred to as the Five Points of Calvinism is not because it was formulated by John Calvin. Now, many believe that John Calvin is the author of the Five Points. He is not. Calvin didn't invent this teaching any more than Columbus invented America. Calvin uh, unearthed some truths that had been dormant because of a lack of the reading of the Bible up until the Reformation. But well over a millennium before Calvin... St. Augustine was teaching these same things, and where did Augustine get it? Well, he got it from the Holy Scriptures. Now, I wish that we could come up with a better name than Calvinism. I really do. But until we do, I guess I'll call myself a Calvinist. But by calling myself a Calvinist, it doesn't mean that I agree with everything that John Calvin taught, because I don't agree with everything that he taught doesn't mean that I condone all of the things that he did. I definitely do not condone everything that John Calvin did. Nor does it mean that I am willing to defend his actions. I am not willing to defend his actions. Because he was a sinner like you and me. And he had misunderstandings just like you and me. However, in my estimation, when it comes to soteriology, and that word soteriology is just a big word for the doctrine of the study of salvation, I believe that Calvin was right on the money. And I think that you should be as well. The reason I believe that you should be as well is because that's what the Bible teaches. Now, I know that in a room this size that not everybody thinks the same way. Some people like the Mets. Some people are wrong. People, People think different things. I know that opinions and understanding on this subject and every other subject vary widely. I think you might be in one of five different categories. Let me enumerate them for you. First of all, there are those in this room who are confirmed Calvinists. Everything that I'm about to teach you, you know, you understand. You probably could even teach it better than I could. You believe it, you love it, you embrace it. And for the most part, for you, this is going to be a review, Uh, it's going to be a reminder Uh, You've already wrestled with these things and you've come to this conclusion. You hold these things dear. To you, I say, please don't check out. Please don't allow familiarity to breed contempt. Please roll back the curtain of memory and reflect upon these things because, as you know, in these doctrines, God receives the maximum glory because, indeed, he did all of the work. There's a second category of people, and that is those who are not fully persuaded, you would call yourself a partial Calvinist. You would agree with some of it, some of it you would uh, be unsure about, some of it you would strongly disagree with, and then instead of calling yourself a five-point Calvinist, you would say that you were a two or a three or a four-point Calvinist. Well, to you, I would say, please listen closely over the next five messages, and you will discover that it is a both logical and scriptural inconsistency Because these points stand or fall together. Uh, It's Frank Sinatra. It's all or nothing at all. If one is totally depraved, then by definition, the election of God must be unconditional. So on and so forth. As you go through the five points, they stand or fall together. So I'm saying think through the consistency of your beliefs. There's a third group here today, I'm guessing, and that is that you are... Definitely not Calvinists. Uh, you do not believe that it reflects the word of God accurately. You do not believe that it reflects the character of God accurately. You do not believe that it is taught in scripture. Uh, you may be even upset right now that I'm going to spend five Sundays wasting your time on such an awful topic. Uh, you may be making plans even as I speak to attend another church because you hate these things so much. Please know that I am not here to pick a fight. Uh, Please relax and understand one thing up front, and that is that there was a day when I sat exactly where you are right now. In fact, I would venture to say that there is not now currently one person in the room who was more Arminian or the exact opposite of Calvinist than I was. In fact, I was raised to believe that one could lose their salvation and that they did lose their salvation every time they committed a willful sin. I lived in absolute horror that every time I sinned that I had lost my salvation. I believed that it was entirely up to to me. I did not believe that God would choose who would be saved and who would not. I was a militant anti-Calvinist. I can remember as I sat in my college literature class, and my pagan professor stood in front of the class, and he said, in order to understand early America, you have to understand who Jonathan Edwards was, and in order to understand him, you have to understand what the five points of Calvinism are, and he wrote on the board, T-U-L-I-P, enumerated all the points, and he said, this is what the early Americans believed, and as I stood there and looked at this, my jaw dropped open, and I raised my hand as the one Christian in the room and said, I want you to know I am a Bible-believing Christian, and that is not what the Bible teaches. And Jonathan Edwards was a moron. He didn't know what he was talking about at all, which the pagan professor agreed with me on, which just shows you where I was at the time. Then I began to go on a mission, a mission to disprove Calvinism, and I began to open the Scriptures and to read them. And as I did... I came to the conclusion that not only was I wrong, but that this was right. And so to those of you who do not at this time agree with this or may never agree with this, please understand I'm not here to pick a fight. Also understand that since I presented this the last time and it's been <clears throat> almost, it's it's been... A little over eight and a half years ago since I presented this, please know that there's been a big change in my heart since that time, and I've come to understand the importance of the gospel, that the gospel is of first importance, and that the doctrines of grace should be presented in a way that is gracious, and that if at the end of the day you do not agree with me, please understand that you do not have to be a Calvinist to be a member of North Shore Baptist Church, and you certainly don't have to agree with me. You have every right in the world to disagree with my position, and my feelings will not be hurt in the least. However, to those of you that are in this camp, let me issue a challenge to you that I hope you find agreeable, and that is this. You are welcome to disagree, but please make sure that before you disagree, that you can disagree in actuality. What I mean by that is this. You have to understand the position with which you are disagreeing, and here's why. If you don't understand Calvinism, then you really aren't disagreeing with it. Uh, You are disagreeing with what you think it teaches rather than what it really says. One man has rightly said that in order to truly disagree with someone, you must be able to state their position to them in terms that are acceptable to them, Then and only then can you disagree with them, otherwise you're not really disagreeing with them, you're disagreeing with what you think they teach. Let me give you three illustrations. About 15 years ago, a dear member of our church was listening to these doctrines for the first time and really was confused and wanted to know what he should believe about these things and so he contacted the ministry of a prominent television radio preacher, if I said his name you would know it right away and said, do you have any material on Calvinism? And the tape was sent to him, and he let me listen to the tape. And as this prominent, well-respected Bible teacher began to discuss Calvinism and then to explain why he didn't believe it, it was a straw man argument because this teacher was saying everything that we do not believe. He was saying things that we don't believe at all and then chopping them down. Well, of course, I could chop those things too because it wasn't what we believed. Second illustration comes from this very platform where, again, about 15 years ago, we had a debate. Dr. James White debated a gentleman in our area on the subject of predestination. And as they were debating, and the man presented his points, Dr. White got up and said, Sir, why is it that you say we believe what we do not believe at all? Dr. White asked the man, he said, did you read the books that I sent you? Because James White had written some books on the subject. Now there's a confident debater providing his opponent with the material ahead of time. He said, did you get the books that I sent you? The man says, yes, I got them. Thank you very much. I got them, but I didn't read them. And as the man began to tear Calvinism down, he wasn't really tearing Calvinism down. It's what he thought it was. Here's another one. This is maybe more where you live. Several years ago, again, about 15 years ago, a gentleman came and <clears throat> had been nominated to be a deacon of the church, but before he accepted the position, he was a dear Christian, since moved away, a dear, dear Christian, loved the Lord very much, he came to me and he said, I want, you to, I want to be honest with you, Pastor, I know that you're a Calvinist and I need you to know that I am not, and I said, well, okay, that's fine, could you tell me what Calvinism is, and he began to explain it, and he had no idea whatsoever, and everything that he said of it was a misrepresentation of it. And I say that to say this, that I would venture to say that most confirmed Arminians or non-Calvinists are unable to state the points accurately. So I say to you, if you disagree, feel free to disagree, just make sure that you are disagreeing with what we teach and not with what you think we are teaching. Because I have known dozens and dozens of people over the years who, like me, hated this doctrine but then came to believe it. But if at the end of the day, category number three, if at the end of the day you disagree with me on this subject, it doesn't mean that you are less of a Christian and it doesn't mean that you are less of a Christian in my book. Because honestly, some of the best, in fact, I would even say the best Christians that I've ever known in my life wholeheartedly disagree with me on this. So it's not a matter of fellowship. Um, You could love the Lord very much and still come to a different conclusion than I do. Here's category number four, and that is you could care less. Uh, This already is boring you to tears. You came to church on this, the first Sunday of the new year, hoping to hear a good sermon about how to keep your New Year's resolutions. And um, all we're going to talk about is doctrine. A doctrine bores you. You fail to see the relevance in it. In your estimation, there is something more important that can be taught and discussed. This to you is trivial. This to you, in your opinion, is what divides churches. This is something that, in your opinion, should be left out of the pulpit. Uh, You have no opinion on this subject because it just doesn't matter to you. Well, let me say this. It should matter to you. And let me tell you why it should matter to you. It's because doctrine is very important to God. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine. 2 Timothy 4.3, Paul warns Timothy that there was a day coming in his time when people would be unable to endure sound doctrine. And those who say that doctrine is not important, well, they need to know that they have doctrines as well. Doctrine simply means teaching or belief. It's not a dirty word. It's not a scary word. Just know that this is important. And then there's a fifth category. <clears throat> and this is the group that says, I don't have any idea what you're talking about. Uh, I just decided to come to church today because it's the new year and wanted to get off on the right foot. You have totally lost me. I haven't been saved that long, or I don't even know if I am saved. I don't know anything really about doctrine. I don't know very much about the Bible. Perhaps many of the terms that I've used already have been words you've never heard before. Maybe I ran through this so fast that you don't even know what subject we're talking about, let alone where you stand on it. You're totally lost. Well, let me say to you, please don't check out. Please don't be discouraged. What I'm going to attempt to do is to be very simple, very direct, and to engage you and your powers of concentration and the power of the Holy Spirit to listen closely, to take notes, and I think it will be clear even up to this point it's been foggy. That having been said, let's move into the first of the five points of Calvinism, T, which stands for total depravity. We're going to approach it this morning in a five-point outline. We're going to look at total depravity distorted, total depravity defined, total depravity demonstrated. Then we're going to look at some objections to it. Finally, we're going to give some practical application. But first of all, how is the doctrine of total depravity distorted? I think it's distorted because people do not understand what the word total means in total depravity if the word depravity simply means sin people think that total depravity means that we are totally sinful but that's not what the doctrine means at all it doesn't mean that every man is as bad as he possibly can be that would be absolute depravity and the scripture does not teach absolute depravity it doesn't teach that you couldn't be any worse the total in total depravity means that sin has infected every area of your life. However, you could be much worse. Everybody in this room, at one time or another, has hated. Not every person in this room has committed murder. Every person in this room has lusted. Not every person in this room has committed adultery. To be totally depraved, also, does not mean that you are not capable of any relative good you are capable of relative good. Very bad people are capable of helping little old ladies across the street, which is a relatively good thing. You can be totally depraved and at the, still, and at the same time still do some relatively good things. Now, not absolutely good, good enough for God in His standard of perfection, but relatively good. For example, Adolf Hitler spared some French villages at the request of a priest. It was said of Adolf Hitler that when little children would come into the room, he would stop what he was doing. He would take the children on his lap and that he would be very kind to them. In some ways, Hitler was relatively good. But yet at the same time, we know that he was totally depraved. One who was totally depraved cannot do anything that is truly good. Because to be truly good means to be like God and to do something to perfection. That is not within our grasp. But we can do things which are relatively good. Unbelievers do relatively good things every day. Soldiers uh, fall on hand grenades. That's a relatively good act. Jesus said that unbelievers do good things. He said that we are to love our enemies. And in order to demonstrate his point, he said that even the worst of people love their friends and love their family. So what I'm about to tell you about total depravity doesn't mean that you're as bad as you possibly can be or that you can't do any good. What it simply means is that you have been totally affected by sin, which brings us to Roman numeral two, total depravity defined. Here's what it means. It means that every single aspect of your life has been infected and as a result, You are not capable of true goodness as God defines goodness. Total depravity came upon us as a result of the fall of Adam in the Garden of Eden. And when Adam fell, he plunged the entire race into sin. And we have all sinned, and as a result of Adam's sin, we all have a sinful nature. We're born with it. And this depraved nature includes the inability to love God the way that He deserves to be loved, and this depraved nature includes us having a will which does not allow us to come to God or come to Christ for salvation on our own, left to ourselves. The fall of man left us dead and blind and ignorant to spiritual matters, and without the enlightening of the Holy Spirit, we cannot understand the things of the Spirit of God, and without the enlightening of the Holy Spirit... Our emotions are corrupt and we are turned in the direction of sin rather than God. Every part, totally every part of you has been infected by this. Now, what is the key? The key is that our natural desires will lead us in the direction of sin, just like gravity will lead something to fall out of your hand onto the ground. Your will is governed by your nature and your nature is corrupt. Total depravity means that the unsaved man is never able to do good as God defines good and that he does evil continually. And This is not reserved for Hitler or Bernie Madoff or Osama bin Laden. Scripture puts us all in this category. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God through one man sin entered the world and death through sin and thus death spread to all men because all men sinned. Romans 5.12 You and me, through Adam, have been conceived in sin. We were born with wicked, selfish, lying hearts and we have spent our lives making sinful decisions. And we've lost the ability in our sin to choose Christ on our own. Now, Everything that I've said up to this point, please, I beg you, don't believe me. The reason why I say don't believe me is because I have not demonstrated this from Scripture yet at all. I have just defined terms. I've given you a little bit of logic, and I've said, here's what it does not mean, here's what it does mean. But everything up to this point is what the theologians have said. We have not yet looked at what God says. Let me see if I can demonstrate this point number three from Scripture. And I'm going to defend this position from Scripture, breaking it down into three areas. Number one, our mind and our heart. And these words are interchangeable in Scripture, that sin has infected that. Number two, our actions. And number three, our wills. Mind, heart, number one. Our actions, number two. And our wills, number three. And what I'm going to give you is not an exhaustive list of every verse in the Bible which supports total depravity, but hopefully I will give you enough to support each area. Let's begin with the mind and the heart. Genesis 6.5 Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That is a description of you. That is a description of me. Jeremiah seventeen nine. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? This means that you do not know yourself and you do not know how wicked you are. I can preach for a long time. I can preach and preach and preach and preach, but at the end of the day, no matter how I describe you, you are actually worse and more wicked than I am capable of describing. Who can know how wicked we are? Here's another verse that describes our hearts and our minds. Jesus tells us the source of where everything wicked comes from. It comes from our hearts. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts and adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, Wickedness, deceit, lewdness, and evil eye. That's speaking of jealousy. Blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within and defile a man. The source of sin is you. The source of sin is me. It's our heart. It's our mind. And then 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. But the natural or unsaved man does not re- receive the things of the Spirit of God. For they are foolishness to him nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. You say, well, you just don't understand. It's right. That's right. You just don't understand because according to this, you in an unsaved state are not capable of understanding spiritual things. And as a result, sadly, it follows that we will do wicked deeds. When does that start? Psalm 58.3. The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray as soon as they are born, speaking lies. Take a little baby, a precious little baby, in a pink blanket, a baby with a dry diaper, a baby that has a baba and a baby that has a bottle, a baby that is in a nice warm bed in a safe, protected place. That baby will scream bloody murder as though something is wrong. Why? Because that baby is a liar and that baby will turn into a toddler that is a liar, and then a child, and then a teenager, an adult. Lies are something which we do by nature. Lies are something which come very natural to us. Isaiah 64:6. 6, but we are all like an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. This is not talking about the bad things you do. This is talking about the good things you do. In the eyes of God, the good things you do are like filthy rags. We fade as a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. Continuing with our actions, it gets worse. Isaiah 53, 6, we do not like God's rules. We're all like sheep. We've all gone astray. We've all turned everyone to his own way. Thank God that he, the Lord, laid upon him the Son, the iniquity of us all. But we are running, as we sang earlier today our hell-bound race. And then, very succinctly, it's put in the book of Romans, chapter 3, verse 10, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. So get the picture, follow the argument, wicked hearts, wicked minds, lead to wicked actions. And up to this point, you know what? As we're walking the race with Calvinists and non-Calvinists, Calvinists and Arminians, there's no difference up to this point. Every Arminian would agree up to this point Man is wicked, man is sinful, thinks wicked, feels wicked, does wicked. But here's where the paths start to part. The Calvinist at this point, and I believe the Bible at this point, begins to talk about man's will and man's ability with respect to coming to Christ for salvation. Let's begin with Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. Walk into a funeral home, go up to the casket, speak to the corpse, see what that person is interested in. Uh, see where their leanings are. See where they, how, how do they feel at that point. Invite them to do something with you. Invite them to do something fun with you. There's going to be no response. Why? They're dead. And that's the metaphor that is used of us prior to coming to Christ. We're alive physically, but spiritually there's no interest at all. We're not sick. We're not wounded, we're dead. Continuing with our will. Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 26, speaking of the person that opposes, the person that is unsaved. We need to pray for them and be gentle to them because God might grant them repentance, it says in the previous verse, and that they might come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. So our will is not free in the sense that we're doing what we want, but we are dead and our wills are in bondage to the devil. Here's another one. And if you're in the habit of putting a star or an asterisk or underlining or saying, here's your bottom line, here's your knockout punch. Remember Madison Square Garden, Ali Frazier, it was one left hook that ended it all. This is the left hook that ends it all here. This is the knockout punch. John 6:44. Jesus said, Clearly, you say, well, we're not reading it in its context. Go back, read it in its context. In its context, the people got furious that he said this. This says what it means. and means what it says. This is your left hook. This is your knockout punch. This is so simple to understand. No one can come to me, Jesus said, unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. What does that mean? That means you are not capable of of coming to Christ on your own. And finally, Romans 3.10. And when I say finally, I don't mean this is all that the Bible has to say. This means that this is all we're going to present today about this. And please don't be deceived into thinking when I say finally that it means that we're near the end of the sermon. It just means (laughs) finally, finally in presenting this sub-point, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. We've already read that. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. So we're dead. The devil has taken us captive. Our hearts are wicked. Our minds are wicked. Our actions are wicked. We don't understand the things of the Spirit of God. We can't come unless he draws us. We don't understand and we don't seek after God. They've all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. Now, you look at that and you say, that leaves very little room for free will. And I say, no, it leaves no room at all for free will. You say, well, Ed, do you believe in free will? Well, let's define our terms. Yes and no. Depends on what you mean by free will. If by free will you mean Do I believe that man is a free moral agent who makes genuine actual choices which are uncoerced? Yes, in that sense, I believe in free will. I believe that every choice we make is a choice based upon that which we want to do. That I believe. But if by free will you mean, do we have a will that is uninfluenced? I would say a million times no. Because of what I've just demonstrated... Our will is governed, influenced, driven, bound, in bondage to our nature. And our nature is a nature of sin. Let me see if I can explain this. You do what you do because that's what you want to do. But every choice that you make is determined by something. It is determined by the strongest inclination of your will at the point of decision. Now, if you listen to what I just said right now and you say, well, I see that, I get it. Please don't believe it because you see it and because you get it. If you're listening to what I'm saying right now and say, I don't even know, I'm just having trouble following your train of thought. Don't dismiss it because you can't follow the logic of the argument. I mean, here's the logic of the argument The dog is going to chase the rabbit because the dog has a nature that chases rabbits. You are going to sin because it is your nature to sin. I don't understand what you're talking about. Whether you understand or whether you don't understand what I'm talking about, I have demonstrated from Scripture that is what determines what we believe. I've determined from Scripture that the unsaved mind and heart and deeds are wicked, that we are dead, that we are disinterested, that we don't understand, and that we are captives of Satan. And now back to John 6:44, your left hook, your knockout punch. Whether you followed the argument or whether you've been asleep up to this point, this is clarity. No one, Jesus speaking, Jesus, who is truth, Jesus, who is the truth teller, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. Therefore, the strongest inclination of the depraved will is never going to come anywhere near believing in and loving and trusting Christ. In fact, it will go in the opposite direction. Let me say this, however. The Bible does teach that whoever wants to be saved can be saved. You say, you are really contradicting yourself. No, I'm not. Jesus himself gives an open invitation and says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Who may be saved? Anybody that wants to be saved. But we have to ask another question, and that is, according to Scripture, who wants to be saved? And the answer, unequivocally, is nobody. If I said to you, when church is out this afternoon... You have the freedom to leave, to walk out these doors, to go over into the lawn before it starts to snow, to get down on all fours and begin to eat the grass. Most of you are capable of doing that. You're capable of doing that. Whether you have false teeth or real teeth, you're able to do it. If you're able to get down or someone could bend down and get the grass for you if you can't bend down, and you could eat the grass. You are free to do it. There's not a law against it. Your teeth work. You could swallow it. it, You could do it. You, at any time you want to, can eat the grass on this front lawn. But you are never going to do it. And the reason that you are not going to do it is because you don't want to do it. And the reason you don't want to do it is because you have a human nature. You don't have a bovine nature. You can come to Christ anytime you want to. But left to yourself, let me tell you, there will never be a time that you will want to come to Christ because of everything that I've demonstrated from Scripture up to this point. <clears throat> Which brings us to Roman numeral 4. An objection to this doctrine. And here's the objection. The objection is the Bible, time and time again, says that we are to choose. Doesn't that imply that we have the ability to make the right choice? The Bible says, Choose this day whom you will serve. The Bible says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. The Bible says, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. The Bible says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Sounds to me like those invitations mean that we have the ability to believe. But they do not. Because we are confusing ability with responsibility. They state that man has the responsibility to believe in Christ and to repent and to follow him. But ability and responsibility are not the same thing. I rob a bank. I steal a million dollars. I lose the money. Am I responsible for the money? Yes. Am I capable of paying it back? No. I have the responsibility, but not the ability. We are responsible to love God with all of our hearts, but we are not capable of doing that. Let me give you proof of this. John chapter 1. These are the last two verses we're going to turn to. John chapter 1. Look in verse 12. John 1.12 But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. What does this mean? Well, there are a lot of nuances to it, and we can go back and forth, and we can find to it, in it. But basically, at its heart, it means this. Receive Jesus. Believe in Jesus. You're a child of God. You're in the family of God. You're saved. I, I mean, I'm, I know there's probably more to it there, but at its very heart, that's what it means. Believe, and you're saved. But the next verse teaches that we do not have the ability to do this on our own. Verse 13. I'll read 12 again. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, meaning you don't inherit it from your father and mother, Nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Look at that phrase. Nor of the will of man. Verse 12, believe and you'll be saved. Verse 13, it's not your will that does it. Nor of the will of man, but it is the will of God, not the will of man. Let me demonstrate it another place in Scripture. Matthew 11 I've already alluded to this verse earlier. Verse 28. It's a beautiful verse. It's a true verse. It's an invitation for salvation. Jesus says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. What does this mean? Well, again, there are a lot of nuances to it, but essentially at the end of the day, what it means is if you believe in Jesus, if you come to him, you will be saved. You see that in the verse. Now, look at the previous three verses, 25, 26, and 27. At that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. Jesus praying to the Father, and he says in verse 27, all things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and lo and behold, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Who is going to come to Christ? Anybody that wants to. Who is going to want to? Only the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. And that's it. Unsaved man is totally depraved. In his mind, his heart, his actions, his motive, and his will. Which brings us to our last point today. And actually it's a series of subpoints, and that is application. What are we to do with this information? First of all, the doctrine of total depravity is of practical value because it explains the evening news. It explains the evening news. It explains why Bernie Madoff could steal all the money that he stole. We look around... At the wickedness of man. How could that person have gone into that bodega with that gun and shot a man that he didn't even know for 20 bucks? How could he do that? Because he's a wicked sinner. How could my husband cheat on me? I mean, I'm sorry that he did, but I understand why. Because out of the heart proceed adulteries. How could my wife have left me? I'm very sad that she did, but I understand why she did because she's a wicked sinner. How could my children rebel against me after everything that I've done? We've raised them the right way. We've brought them up in the Lord. We've we've prayed for them. We've done everything that we possibly could do. How could they disrespect us by turning against us and turning against the Lord? I sincerely mean that when you ask that question, my heart breaks for you. But but I know the answer. The same way that you commit the sins that you commit, and the only difference between you and your husband that committed adultery on you, or you and your wife that left you, or you and your children that rebelled against you, the only difference between you and them is the grace of God. And if it weren't for the grace of God... Who knows what prison you would be in or who knows what graveyard you would be rotting in. We need to be more compassionate toward the unsaved in viewing them, not letting them off the hook, but you wouldn't yell at a blind man who was walking who tripped over something. Pick up your feet. Come on, look where you're going. Total depravity explains sin in our world. It doesn't excuse it. But it sure makes sense out of the evening news. Makes sense out of what's happening in your own heart. You say this, how could I have done what I did to the Lord? How could I have fallen back into that sin? I am so sorry that you did. But I understand why you did. Because you are desperately wicked. Which leads us to our second point of application and that is this. An understanding of total depravity should cause us to be even more thankful for our salvation and more expressive in our love to God. God should receive all the honor and all of the glory and all of the praise. Lord, I never would have come to you on my own. I never could have come to you on my own. Lord, at the time it seemed like I was the one that was making the choice, but now, Lord, I know that it was you that enabled me, and apart from your enabling grace, I would still be in my sin. Our testimonies should be bubbling over, reflecting a God-centered, God-glorifying, rather than man-centered, man-glorifying account of what happened. Our account should not be, here's what I did. But our account should be, here's what God did. Tell us, Lazarus, how did you get out of that tomb? I was in there four days. I was struggling. I was trying to get the grave clothes off. Then Jesus came along and he helped me. He told someone to roll the stone away. And I just got that extra burst of energy and tore the grave clothes off and came out. No, you were dead, Lazarus. You were rotten. You were stinking. Surely, Lord, he stinketh. Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth. You did not contribute to your salvation. All the praise, all the glory goes to God. Here's number three. Because of total depravity, when we share the gospel as evangelists, we need to be very careful that we never coerce or manipulate the unsaved into a decision. This can be done with little children. There was a point, I don't know if I could still do it, but there was a point with all of my children that I could get them to pray to ask Buddha to be their personal savior. You could get a child to do anything. You want to go to heaven? Yes. You want to go to hell? No. Do you believe in Jesus? Yes. Say, Jesus, come into my heart. Jesus, come into my heart. Now you're saved. That's not evangelism. And I think sometimes well-meaning evangelists are too zealous to close the deal and what they end up doing is giving unconverted people a sense of assurance when these people aren't saved at all. We do not stand and sing 15 stanzas of just as I am until you will become convinced to be regenerated and come forward and play on your emotions. You see, a good salesman and a good evangelist are entirely different. A good salesman does close the deal. A good evangelist says, repent and believe. And that's why I would really caution you not to stick a prayer under someone's nose and say, here, read this prayer and you're a Christian. The word is repent. The word is believe. When I share the gospel with someone, at the end of the day, what I say to them is this. Do you understand what I just presented to you? Now the ball is in your court. If you understand what I said, get off by yourself, get on your knees and call out to God. But this is between you and God. I'm not here to close the deal. We are not gunslingers. There's a man I knew one time that carried around a Bible. No lie, can't make this stuff up. Like gunslingers with notches on his belt, he took a knife and he had notches on his Bible with everyone that he had gotten to pray the sinner's prayer. Yikes. People are dead. Tell them to repent and to believe, but it's God that brings life. Here's the final point of application. Maybe today, while the Word was being preached or while the gospel songs were being sung, or maybe this week, just through circumstances in your life, maybe God has revealed to you that you are a totally depraved sinner. And maybe today He has awakened you to your need for a Savior. What did I say earlier? Anybody that wants to be saved can be saved. Maybe now, for the first time in your life, you want to be saved. Well, if you have this awareness of your sin... And if you have a fear of God and if you have a hatred for your sin and a fear of hell, I want to tell you today by way of application that there is an escape. It is Christ Jesus, God's only son, who came from heaven to earth and lived a sinless life and died on the cross for sinners. And there on that cross, he bore the sins of his people and that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And if you believe that he died for you and that he paid for your sins and if you repent and by God's grace turn from those sins, you will be saved. For whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You may not understand again all of the particulars about it, but you know that you're a sinner and you know that Jesus died for sinners and you know that he's merciful. I want to tell you today, I want to plead with you today, by way of application. Even if you disagree with me about the five points of Calvinism, Calvinism, agree with me on this. You're a sinner who needs a Savior and Jesus came to die for sinners. Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus lives today to be your Savior. He came to save totally depraved sinners like you and me. All right. Next week, Lord willing, we're going to come back. We're going to continue with part two. Part two. We're going to look at unconditional election. Um, Did God choose us or did we choose Him? If He chose us, what was it based upon? That's what we're going to look at next week. Please stand to be dismissed. And again, as you are, if you have questions about this... Thank you for listening to this sermon from Doctrines of Grace Church Planners. If you would like to learn about Doctrines of Grace Church Planners, or support our church planning efforts in the New York City area, please visit www.dg-cp.org.